Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. My next guest knows what it's really like to dwell in the inner sanctum of power and politics in Australia. He knows what it's like to move into the Prime Minister's suite on the back of Kevin Rudd's sweeping victory of 2007 and see all that so suddenly collapse in tears some two and a half years later. He also knows what it's like to straight away begin working with Julia Gillard as Australia's first female Prime Minister. In fact, Tim Dixon has worked closely alongside three Labor leaders and he also knows what it's like to have a much bigger picture and he sure needed that in a life grounded by a faith in an all-powerful God. These days, Tim works in New York with Purpose.com, aiming to bring about the kind of change in the world that politics alone just can't. He's in Australia at the moment, and I'm so glad he's joining us on Open House. Tim, welcome. Thanks, Lee. Great to see you. Tim, I'll get to that question, so what's it like to really work with Kevin Rudd in a moment, but I want to start with your work with Purpose.com. It's brought together a number of passions of yours, being an economist with a strong interest in foreign affairs and justice. Well, one of the lessons that I got from working in in politics, you know, I had six years in politics, um, working with the different Labor leaders, opposition and in government, was I realised that there's a lot of people in government who want to do really good things, but they're not as powerful as what you think from the outside. On the outside, we say governments should do this, they should do that, they should do that. But in fact, from the inside, you realise... They're constrained by many things. There's a great statement that um, President Roosevelt made when somebody came up to him, they were arguing, do this, do this, do this. And he said, I agree with you, now go out and convince me. And one thing that's critical that needs to be done with big changes is we actually need to build public support. And a lot of politicians nowadays are very reactive rather than proactive. That's how the machine works um, and how public policy works. And if we're going to achieve big changes, we really need a groundswell of public support. Otherwise, the special interest groups who are always there in the lobbies and so on block good things being done. Purpose is basically there to do that kind of work. It's to build the the public support, the public engagement um, around a whole lot of complex issues, which might be anything from uh, issues like global poverty, improvements to education, obesity and diabetes and those sorts of things. There's environmental issues and so on. And what you find with these issues... If we're going to get change, you've got to build public support and engage the public. I don't think politicians are any longer in the position to do that in the way they once did because people don't like them and don't trust them, largely. You know, they're very cynical about politicians. But when a community movement starts and drives an issue, people are much more willing to listen and engage. And that's the kind of work that uh, the purpose does, is to find ways to engage people in interesting, fresh ways with these sorts of issues. Social media is a very important part of that. It's critical. So the technology enables us to do to engage people in ways that were never possible before. I mean, a few weeks ago, you had someone um, on the program who had just jumped online after seeing the um, a magazine do a Australia's hottest asylum seeker, and they found that offensive, and jumped online, set up a petition, got five thousand people within a day, and the, the magazine changed their policy. And that's a great example of how social media empowers ordinary people to be involved. You don't have to be part of a political party. You don't have to be in parliament. You don't have to belong to a formal organisation or institution. And I think that's one of the exciting points of our time, that power can be spread out more. People who want to achieve change 
and are innovative and entrepreneurial can do that. If our leaders, as you say, can't lead as they once did, how do you define what good government is and what good leadership is then? Good leadership is the essence of it is having integrity as an individual, but integrity also in terms of your values. And politicians talk a lot about values, but to me, the real test of your values is what are you prepared to pay a price for? And in politics today, the overall environment, people are pressured by the 24-hour news cycle, the constant run of polling, not to take risks. Because if you take a risk and it's unpopular, your polls go down and you really get hit hard for it. You know, great leadership is where you're prepared to take those risks. And I think, you know, you think of the big reform era of the 1980s, 1990s in Australia, the Hawke and Keating reforms, which did, you know, a lot to build the country's sort of future prosperity. They were in an environment when they were able to think long-term, make big changes. And if they took a hit in terms of popularity, they were willing to do that. It's a brave thing to do that. Yeah. And it's, as they it's, would say on Yes, Prime Minister. Yeah, it's brave. And that's right. You need courage. Yes. <laughs> and it's hard. It's, it is harder now to do that than what it is, was in the past. And, you know, I guess I have a, you know, a nuanced appreciation of that from working on the inside. I can see the price of pushing for things that are not popular. It's so much harder to have a conversation with the public and engage it and explain because everything gets reduced to 140 characters on Twitter. So there is this sort of dumbing down of of debate, and it's hard to break through that. And that's where I think things like online social movements play a role in building a, a larger debate where the politicians can't. Was this kind of work and politics, your work with Purpose.com, and politics always in view when you chose economics as your specialty, which is where you've come from. I've always had a passion for the sort of the big issues, politics, and and you know how does the world work. And for some reason, I got fascinated reading newspapers even as a as a kid at primary school, which my parents thought was deeply strange. <laughs> Sad individual. Um, I can even remember when there were tabloid newspapers in the afternoon, which yes. is a, a a long distant memory. Yeah. I think that one thing for me was a sort of a I've always had a had a fascination with how do all of these pieces fit together. So one reason why I did economics, uh, I had a few years practicing law, I had my own business for a while, I was involved in teaching. I went in as an economic advisor, became speechwriter. So I saw the, the kind of political process, been involved in the Labour Party, the, the sort of the party process. So an understanding how all of those pieces fit together, because I think sometimes if you just train as a lawyer, then you think that the solution to everything is a piece of legislation or legal activism. If you train only as an economist, you think the answer to everything is a treasury model. Um, And the reality is that they're all pieces of the picture. They're all the levers of power um, that can be used to achieve things. And when you've got complex challenges, you need to sort of know how to use those different levers. And I think, you know, part of that, the way I see it is there are some inside the political game, the formal political system, and there's also a bunch of them outside, which are important as well. And we need to see both of them as being important and and valuable. How did your Christian faith inform all that mix? Well, very significantly, because I've always sensed, at a personal level, I've always sensed the importance of integration between all the different sort of parts of life. I've always found it a little strange that, I mean, if God transforms individuals, then surely that also has a larger social impact and a larger effect on society. You know, faith is never a purely private thing. It has obviously enormous ramifications in your personal life. But when, I think historically, when God works in, you know, you look at periods of revival, the revivals have larger social effects. And so I've always tried to sort of understand how those 
pieces fit together. I've watched it at a time when I think we've got some really bad models from America in particular, where Christian faith has been associated with one side of politics in a really rancorous and very partisan and negative kind of way, to the extent where if you look at perceptions of Christians among young people in America, they're very negative. There's a very narrow understanding of what the Christian faith actually is, and a lot of that comes because of the kind of Christian activism that there's been in the last sort of 20-odd years in, in the US. So so those things have always interested me, and in an ongoing way, I mean, you know, I've thought through a lot of those issues from the inside as well, watching the way that the debate about faith and politics has evolved in Australia. While I share your concern about that, how do you bring faith into a public realm or a policy realm that's not going to be that muscular dogmatism that's poking sticks in eyes so many times. This is where I reckon we need to do better theology than what we've done. I think that if the Bible is describing all of life and all of reality, then it surely offers a whole lot of insights on issues of what makes a society work, what fulfills human beings, what our responsibilities are to each other and so on. So it kind of puzzles me that the debate is often so narrow about personal conduct and those sort of classic personal morality issues. Because, for example, think of the implications. We have, in the biblical story, God revealed as three persons. The Trinity is an immensely complex thing to understand and talk about. But that revelation that God is three persons, that he and that he is love, and that therefore God is revealed to us through a relationship between three persons... What does that mean when we say we as humans are created in God's image? It means that we are created for relationship, that we are never fulfilled unless we have fulfilling relationships. Now, I think that is an explosive piece of public policy insight. And I think more and more, when you look at social science research, it tells us that. So if we take that insight, take an issue like uh, unemployment, if you think of unemployment purely in terms of people who are out of work for a long period of time, if you think of it purely in terms of what money we give them, what training programs, whatever, I think you miss the point that if you look at the research, people often stay out of work for long periods of time because they're socially isolated and their problems are as much about relationship and isolation, just as it's true of mental health issues, of aged care and so on. Now, if we started to think less about how do we run a program or spend money at a government level, but more about how do we connect people, how do we build stronger communities, then I think we'd get some terrific insights. I mean, that's just one area, but this is where I see the the potential for churches to play an important role because they're on the ground, they've got their links in communities and they can do some really positive things. Are you able, though, to convince the politicians of that kind of worldview? Are you able to convince the media both of whom are so focused on the polls every week or fortnight. I don't need to engage in Trinitarian theology with (laughs) Julia Gillard, and I think she'd fall asleep fairly quickly if I tried. (laughs) Just do it quickly. But, (laughs) But there is no doubt to me that there are many points of public policy in Australia where people know that we're at a dead end, where the policies approaches we're using aren't working. And I've had this conversation with, you know, some cabinet ministers in the last few years, And they say, well, look, we're trying this, we're trying that, but we know that none of these things are really working. So we kind of resign ourselves and say we do the best we can. 
in that sense, there's more opening, I think, than what people often expect or anticipate. There's more opening for fresh ideas. See, I think we're in a very different environment to where we were 30, 40 years ago, where there was a very hard demarcation about a secular government. People of faith were not respected in the public space. They were seen as religious zealots. Now there's much more opening if you come forward with an idea and say, why don't we try this? Let's look at what's happening at a local community level. Government is not the solution to all of those things. I think there's a real opportunity to look into new ways of approaching old problems. And those can come out of Christian insights. There's a lot of quite practical ways that a Christian perspective can inform new ways of doing things. If we move away from that view of what can we get from our politicians, which churches often have, to what can we give our society. And in that way, I think we can recover some of the lost ground that the Christians have lost in the last few years in Australia. On Open House, we're with Tim Dixon, who these days is working for Purpose.com in New York. Tim, you've worked, as I said, with three Labor leaders. Can I ask you, first of all, why Labor? Why not Conservative? All of the political parties have traditions and, you know, cultures and so on. And I've got friends, you know, across all the parties personally. But the heart of what made the Labor Party, its belief in social justice, the commitment to giving opportunity and advancement to people who don't have opportunities, is very much the heart of the gospel message and very much the heart of the biblical story. interesting part of the Labor Party history that's lost to most people is that the Labor Party very much grew out of Methodism. Methodism, which drove the trade union movement, was very influential in the early days. And I think some research done recently that showed the first, I think it was the first 35 elected uh, members of parliament in New South Wales, of those, almost two-thirds were lay Methodist preachers. So, uh, you know, the idea that your faith would uh, lead you into Labor politics to me seems to be quite natural. I often actually ask the question in reverse, but but I do appreciate that, you know, in the last few years we've seen, you know, there's almost a sort of expectation that people of Christian faith are likely to be conservative voters, and the numbers certainly show that, and that's partly the influence of America and other things, but to me it feels natural, and there's lots of uh, Christians in the Labor Party, and I see, certainly know of a lot of younger Christians um, in the Labor Party, so... That perception might change in the next few years. How do you see the Labor Party holding on to and representing those, albeit impressive, uh, roots of its cause? Any of the modern political parties you know, have the struggle of sustaining their foundational values and translating them in the modern era. So I think you know, the Labor Party's got warts all over it, as we do individually. One of the elements of politics that I think is problematic is the need to always conform and to pretend there's no disagreements. There's enormous debate that go on within political parties, but it seems like you know we nowadays have to paper over those disagreements and pretend that they, they don't exist. Uh, they do. I mean, I don't have a Pollyanna-ish view at all. You know, Labor Party in government has made many mistakes and has disappointed many of us in many different ways, uh, but equally has accomplished a great deal. And in Australia, we have a parliamentary democratic system where you're either going to end up with left or right side governments and that's the institutional structure. Let's make it work. Let's make it work as best we can. And, you know, I would equally wish the very best for friends who go on to the other side of politics and then I'll debate the issues vigorously yes. but respectfully with yeah. them. The first Labor leader you work with was Kim Beasley. Paint us a picture of him as a man and as a leader. Kim is a lovely guy. 
in terms of his uh, personal faith, I mean, he's you know, immensely likable, warm, charitable person and someone who um, was very easy to work with. I remember one moment when we were giving a speech to a, um, a Christian audience and I sat down with him and I said, you know, I think you should be talking about your personal faith. And we had this long, very personal conversation, which was seemed extremely strange because we were in the middle of a political party conference and Kim's ability to sort of forget everything that all the craziness going on outside. He started reciting to me when I surveyed the wondrous cross and gave me the entire hymn. Wow. Uh, and I thought it was quite remarkable. And, you know, he did share some of those things um, subsequently. Look, with all political leaders, you get so close to them when you work as a staffer. You can be with them at 5.30 in the morning when they're up and out. You can be with them at you know, midnight still in the office working on whatever's happening tomorrow or the next day. So you see all of their strengths and weaknesses. I mean, it's an incredibly intimate thing. And I think one aspect of being a political staffer is it's really important to respect. You know, you're seeing strengths and weaknesses all the time. And you try and bring out the best in the, the person that you're working with. They all have strengths. They all have flaws. You know, if you can engage, you take them as they are, try and make the most uh, with them. So with that kind of affection for a bloke like Kim Beasley and that kind of bloke, was it a hard thing when you saw Kevin Rudd knock him off and you've got to work with Kevin Rudd now? The, the day itself was really hard because... Um, the tragic uh, coincidence was that Kim literally walked out of the caucus boat and was told that his brother had died. Kim's staff were very close to him, and uh, so the combination of those things, I think, was, was quite devastating. And the fact that people couldn't then spend time with Kim, he had to, to fly back. Politics has many intense moments like that, and that was a, certainly an intense moment. But look, at the end of the day, you work closely and you're very committed and you do your job and you try and do it as best as you can. But you're working for the country. You're working for the country's interest and for the party. So there's a transition. Kevin came in. You know, the caucus has given the responsibility to make that choice. And, uh, you know, we sort of moved on. So, I mean, I always maintain good relationships with, with Kim, with Kevin, worked with Julia. I don't see why you should, if you like one or try and work with one, that you should therefore be against the other. I know that that does happen yeah, to some of the hard-headed guys. Yeah, I'm not naive, right. yes. but... I think also there's a different way of approaching it. Okay. You shared, it was well known behind the scenes, shared a very personal connection with Kevin Rudd beyond what's typical in politics with their staffers, and that was that faith connection. Kevin's a peculiar animal because he does literally sit up two o'clock in the morning reading obscure German theology. Um, <laughs> so it's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it is actually true. Kevin's a, a multicoloured personality. Um, I've read that, <laughs> yes. which we'll get yes. to. So, no, and I think you know, one of the things that was valuable in the time working with Kevin was he saw the value of reaching out to church communities and developing a new dialogue and uh, and obviously very openly wanted to fight against that view that the one side of politics had sort of monopolised the political real estate. That certainly allowed me the opportunity to engage more with you know different church leaders across the country and to learn a lot from that. I'll preface this question by saying that none of us is perfect and our public profession of faith doesn't always match, of course, our private behaviour. But how did you process or deal with the public Kevin against the private Kevin that we've also heard so much about over the last couple of years? What I mentioned before, you, you work with people and you try and bring out their best. Certainly in a role as a speechwriter, for example, you have to think about who the person is that you're working with because you're helping them to develop their public voice. 
that means you spend time with them, you spend time with their family, you see them in intimate circumstances that aren't just the work context. I don't think I necessarily feel like I deeply understand Kevin, but you know, I have that complicated, nuanced understanding of somebody who's got you know, terrific aspirations and deep values, but also someone who, you know, on a bad day, uh, Kevin has a bad day and probably shares his bad day with everyone else. Yes, like we all do. <laughs> so we all, we, all, we all hope that there are more good days. Yes, I bet you do. So let's talk about Kevin then. There's been so much, as I said, written about what his personal office was like, what he was like away from the cameras. James Button, another one of his former staffers, in his new book says... Mr Rudd was a failure who ran a dysfunctional and chaotic government paralysed with indecision through tantrums and was contemptuous of his staff. How do you reflect on that when you hear that? Given the way that you're exposed to political leaders when you're in that sort of the role of a, as an advisor, you see the good moments, you see the bad moments, and in a sense you can focus on one side, you can focus on another. Kevin is neither the demon that some people paint him out to be nor the saint that others would, you know, would say that he is. Uh, he's a human being, flesh and blood like all of us. It's very hard for us to genuinely understand the extent of the pressure and how that weighs on an individual. And also... At the same time, all the things that are going on in their personal life, family life, and all those sorts of things. So I think, I mean, one aspect I, I feel like we have to cut our political leaders a break and not focus on a lot of irrelevant personal information. Now, obviously, where the way that you relate to your colleagues and the way that you relate to your staff and all those sorts of things, those things do have an impact on how you work. And I'm sure that Kevin would be the first person to say, you know, he had lessons to learn from, from his time um, in office because... He's a guy who's naturally more bookish and more focused on detail and policy and so on, and he's, he's a less relational guy. And, I mean, in a sense, politically, I guess he paid the, the price for, for that. Yes, because it really does matter how you treat people in politics. Absolutely. With him, it just seems that there was such a gap between the public face of Kevin and what we now learn went on behind the scenes. Did some of that shock you? I think it's important to take people as they are and try and bring out their best. If you think of political history, reading of books like uh, Robert Caro's amazing biography of LBJ in the 60s, LBJ was a strange, often nasty, mercurial character who also was the guy who delivered the war on poverty and civil rights. So let's not think that someone has to be of perfect character to be a good leader. I mean, I think some of the questions you ask about ethics, integrity, and so on are really important. But the really important thing, and it's not to escape those questions, but the really important thing is how you govern and the decisions you make and whether you govern in the public interest or whether you cave into all of those special interests, the powerful, who want you to do what they say. And I think, as a Christian, I think biblically, the test of good leadership is much more to do with what you do in office and how that affects the people that you govern. And it's in terms of this balance, I think we need to put a little bit more of our focus on the harder process of working out is somebody a good leader by what they do rather than focusing on all the personal stuff that kind of comes out in dribs and drabs and stories. So with the depth and the intensity of that connection that you had with him on the day that that all ends so suddenly in tears, as I said before, how do you then pick up the pieces and then start working with Julia Gillard? When numbers of others like Kevin couldn't. Many couldn't, no. Yes. Well, I'd also worked with Julia very closely for the previous, uh, what, since 2007. I'd been working, I was responsible for industrial relations policy, so work choice as the Fair Work Act, and uh, had a lot of respect for her, really liked, you know, she's a very 
easy person to work with, a very good manager. When you're a staffer, I mean, my view of it, you're not an elected official. You're not an elected member of parliament. You're not responsible ultimately for the decisions about who is the leader of the party. And you accept that's, you know, it's not your role. So my role is to serve the leader, serve the party, serve the nation. And Julia Gillard didn't change all the policies the day she came in. And as much as I understood, of course, the nature of the the very difficult personal circumstances, so did a lot of cabinet ministers. I mean, you know, Anthony Albanese has talked about it in the last um, earlier this year when the leadership challenge was on. And he said, you know, this is incredibly hard. He hates to see these tensions, the personal tensions. That's how I feel, because, I mean, knowing these people, knowing cabinet ministers and, and, you know, backbenchers, MPs, at that personal level, you see how many genuine good people there are who are trying to do their best in a political machine that often makes it hard. You know, they often look different publicly to what they really are uh, privately. You emerge from this kind of searing hothouse of politics, especially from that inner sanctum, with a range of incredibly valuable insights and experiences and abilities that would be hard to gain, I think, anywhere else. Could you explain just briefly to us some of those insights and what you've learned, what you've gained out of the whole experience? It's kind of like having a helicopter view. You see how the different pieces fit together. And I think that's where it's an amazing privilege to serve in that kind of role. I think what that has given me is a good sense of how things work, how things change, why when you need to change something in a country and it doesn't happen, the reasons why it doesn't happen. I think it's always struck me going to the political fundraisers that unfortunately we have to have too, too many of <laughs> yes. with, with business leaders, and you have the CEOs of big companies. It's always struck me in a surprising way because you sort of expect them to understand the world in a broad way and how little business, a lot of business leaders actually understand how it works. You know, they, they have this view that because they run a company, they can make a decision and get it implemented tomorrow. Why can't the prime minister? Almost forgetting the fact that there's cabinet, there's a public service, there's a caucus, there's a parliament, there's all the complications of implementation, there's the lack of money, all of those the things. The media. And, <laughs> and then the media. And <laughs> Let's start on the media. I mean, I guess the perspective I've walked away with is that there are many different levers of power to use to accomplish good and overcome evil, in a sense, and, you know, attack problems. And no one lever, you know, whether it's starting a big movement, a big movement doesn't solve the problem, but it can be part of the solution. A government decision doesn't solve the problem, it's part of the solution. I'm sure you've learnt a lot about how to deal with people and about people and about relationships. Yeah, and I mean, one thing that certainly... I mean, it feels like a very obvious thing to say, and I guess it's partly informed by personal faith of just, you know, believing in the dignity of every person and believing in the value of respect and working with people and bringing out their best and so on. The practicalities of just human beings is something that strikes you in an odd way in those sort of great moments of national crisis or urgency or whatever, that some of the most significant things someone can do is just go out and buy a coffee for everybody else who's still working late at night or or whatever. And people just personally are very, you know, in those senior roles, get really pushed to the limit. Um, And just as people need support, you know, and it's just seeing the very human side was a particularly interesting thing for me, because in a sense, you don't really think about it. You watch the West Wing and you think it's all glamour and, 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 you know, Australia is not the West Wing. No, it's not. That's what people like you learn. So I sit here and I speak to you and I think that one burning question is, is there a job in politics for you? Is there an ambition for it? 
a desire for it? Personally, I have a strong sense, comes out of my faith, a strong sense of calling, vocation calling into to work in the public sphere, to work on these large issues, how do the pieces of good policy, issues of justice and overcoming injustice, how do those things come together? Right now, the work I'm doing is richly stimulating and rewarding. I want to do some work on helping churches to engage better with the political process, um, which is something where, you know, I've certainly learned a lot from my role in, um, in, in government. Yeah. And there's a good bit of work to be done there. I'm writing a book. This comes out of that experience. And I'm certainly... Uh, interested in the you know longer term in getting into politics in the sort of elected role. From my perspective, having seen what I've seen, I see the downside. It's just so immensely costly in terms of people's yes. lives and families and so on. I don't see much glamour in it. It's a real grind. I think it's really wrong to think that that's the only way or even the main way that someone can contribute to making a better society. I think there's so many other ways, including business, including social enterprise, uh, you know, church leadership, community leadership. So that's the calculation for me, in a sense, is to weigh up those things and prayerfully consider it. And uh, I guess I you know, make that decision sometime in the next few years. But I think that it's important that we understand that we need to support and encourage good leadership across all areas of society and get out of this view that when everything's wrong, we just blame the government because that doesn't take us forward. It's a great point. And been a great conversation, Tim Dixon. Thank you very much for joining us on Open House. Very much appreciate your time. Thanks, Lee. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.